Welcome to the Fallon Forum, where we bring you independent voices and civil dialogue across the political divide. I'm Ed Fallon, I'm your host, and we're coming to you from the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. That would be Des Moines, Iowa. Hey, if you value what we do, we need your support. Visit the donations page on the Fallon Forum website, or if you run a small business or a nonprofit doing good work in the world, consider becoming a sponsor. And speaking of sponsors, thanks to Gateway Market, that's Central Iowa's premier good food store, bringing together the world's finest products with Iowa-grown foods and passionate, personalized service. If you're looking for quality foods with a community focus, check out Gateway Market and Cafe. Thanks also to psychiatrist Dr. David Drake. If you live in Iowa, wherever you live in Iowa, Dr. Drake can help through the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling offered on a self-pay basis. Contact DavidDrakeFamilyPsychiatry.com. Speaking of culture, thanks to the Des Moines Irish Session for providing our bumper music. You can experience a traditional Irish session every Tuesday somewhere in the greater Des Moines area. Okay, later in the program, we'll be talking about a new call to abolish nuclear weapons coming from the mayor of Hiroshima, Japan. We'll also dig into the incredible disparity that has been allowed to develop between the mega grocers like Walmart and your mom and pop stores, which struggle these days like never before. And finally, Kathy Burns and I will uh, host our monthly garden Q&A. But first, it is uh, my great pleasure to welcome to the program acclaimed best-selling, best-selling author, activist, and Democratic presidential candidate, Marianne Williamson. Hello, Marianne. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. Thank you, Ed. It's great to hear your voice, and thank you for having me on. Now, just so our audience knows, you and I first met uh, back in 2019, at the start of your first run for president, and Kathy and I got to spend a lot of time with you. And uh, I, I mean, now, especially after you rented a condominium, uh, a condo just down the road from us. So it was great to meet you then, uh, to know you. It was a very rich experience, and I'm really, uh, really glad to be back in touch. It feels yeah. great. Yeah. Well, hey, cut into the chase. Why are you running for president? Well, you know, Ed, many of the things that I talked about on the last campaign are just as true now and i don't see anyone else naming the problems as i see them and what are those and well something is wrong at the heart of things uh we are clearly moving in the wrong direction in this country we've had such a massive transfer of wealth and power into the hands of one percent of our people you were talking a couple of minutes ago before i came on about the huge disparity in power between Walmart and your mom and pop grocer. Mm. That's the embodiment of name an area where that's not the issue. Right. That which is natural, that which is human scale, that which is supportive of the human dimension, the natural dimension of the earth, of ecology, of the environment, of commerce, of childhood, of family, of community is being stumped on, completely, almost obliterated. And the community that it brings, the well-being that that brings to people, all of that, and sort of natural order of things where a sense of righteousness and love and compassion and ethics prevails, is being completely stomped on and what can by I... a neoliberal economic order. Yeah, and what kind what kind of profit for huge corporate entities yeah. before the safety, health, and well-being of people? Yes. That's what's wrong. That's why I'm running. And so what can a president do to address that? A, that's a very systemic uh, problem and a huge, a huge issue. What can a president do to address that? 
Well, a president can do a lot. A president does not have a magic wand, and we don't want the president to have a magic wand. But And so it always is going to matter who your Congress is, you know, what party is in control of, of the House, what party is control, in control of the Senate. That's always going to be true. But even when the president, even when the Congress obstructs you on some level, take something like Build Back Better, the fact that Manchin wouldn't go for it and Cinema wouldn't go for it, there's still a lot that the president can do with executive order and that the president can do with a bully pulpit. Congress did not uh, make President Biden approve the Willow Project. Biden didn't. Uh, the Congress did not make Biden give more oil drilling permits, even than Trump has. Hmm. When uh, President Biden said that he would raise the minimum wage, although he raised it for federal workers, and by the way, even the fifteen dollars is not a living wage in many cities in the United States. When he went further in terms of raising the minimum wage for everyone, then uh, the parliamentarian told him they didn't belong in the bill. I can't even imagine uh, the Republican Party ever hiding behind the parliamentarian if they really wanted to get something done. The president won't even mention a uh, public option. The president has said that he would not sign a Medicare for all bill. Uh, the president has proposed this gargantuan increase on the on the um uh, a defense budget, and even though there are some nice, healthy investments in green energy in the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, if you look at the fact that our defense establishment is the single largest emitter, institutional emitter of greenhouse gases on the planet, everything they're doing in the area of of uh, permits to oil, uh, oil companies and everything they're doing in terms of the defense establishment is completely nullifying the benefits of those green energy investments. So when you ask what the president can do, the president ha could have made different decisions in every single issue that I just said. Once again, the president can use executive orders and also the bully pulpit. I would be telling the truth to the American people so that's about a the level of corporate tyranny so that has now turned this country uh, into a government of the corporations by the corporations and for the corporations rather than a government of the people by the people and for the people. That's a long list of, uh, of things that uh, you would feel Joe Biden, President Biden has done wrong. Is that Does that form the basis for why you're running against him? No, I, I'm not thinking, you know, do, uh, Joe Biden is a corporatist Democrat. I think that he is trying to make life better for people, but he's trying to make life better as all establishment corporate uh, Democrats do. They are trying to help people survive what is essentially an unjust system. But because their policies, their neoliberal policies continue to maintain that unjust system, the, and, and as long as they're not willing to challenge the underlying corporate forces that make the return of that suffering always a inevitable, it's simply not enough. It is at best incremental change. We need more than the amelioration of stress. We need fundamental economic reform. Hmm. In the richest country in the world, we have, well, CNBC said the other day, 70% of Americans uh, report living with financial stress. 64% live paycheck to paycheck. 60% could not absorb a $400 unexpected expenditure. One in four Americans live with medical debt. People are rationing their insulin. 68,000 people at least a year die. Uh, of lack of health care. Half of our seniors live on $25,000 and less a year. So absolutely, am I running because okay. uh, Joe Biden is not fundamentally changing that? You better believe it. And, and not only that, but I don't believe that anything less than a compelling 
economic alternative is going to be enough to defeat the Republicans in 2024. And you mentioned the establishment, and I think that is a bipartisan phenomenon. But within, within the Democratic establishment, again, the, 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 the clique of people who want to preserve the status quo, I mean, they did everything they could in 2020 to derail your campaign as well as the campaign of Tulsi Gabbard. I mean, you, you must have been a threat uh, for them to do that. Uh, you know, I mean, I remember uh, they, they called you all sorts of things, the crystal lady, wacky. And um, they, they, I mean, they, and they did different things to Tulsi Gabbard to derail her campaign. Uh, you know, I mean, but, you know, you guys, have, you and Tulsi Gabbard have gone very different directions now. And we don't need to talk about what, what direction she's gone. But, um, but how, do you, how do you respond to the continued presence of that establishment within the Democratic Party? Aren't they going to continue to try to, they're still going to come after you and try to find ways of derailing your campaign? They're doing it right now. Um, last time it was that I was a wacky person. This time it's that I'm a shrew. Um, they create whatever narrative, whatever mischaracterization that they feel is necessary. It's a form of character assassination, really, minimizing, um, creating uh, this. It's, it's so interesting. These stories that sort of live in the ethers. They're doing it now. Um, and a certain kind of blackballing on certain kind of mainstream media. What are they but, doing? What are they doing right now specifically? Well, just some of the some of the uh, shows that you would normally think you would be on if you were uh, being a presidential candidate. I saw that Nikki Haley had a CNN town hall. Well, excuse me, I'm polling higher than Nikki Haley is, but she got her CNN town hall. Some of the the news programs that um, even last time they would have me on on mainstream media. That even if they thought it was almost like I was silly, now they won't have me on at all. But like you said, there's a bit of a threat. You know, there's there's this is the deal as I see it. There's in life what you can control and what you cannot control. I cannot control what they do. But this is what I do have control over. I have control over whether the American people will have, should they choose it, an economic and political alternative to the neoliberal platform that they are being offered in the 2024 election. Hmm. That I have control of. As long as I have the money to continue, and that's a big question, because by suppressing my voice, they suppress my capacity to make sure. money. Yeah. And, uh, but you... as long as I can continue, then I can look in the mirror and 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 know that I, I tried. I tried to uh, present the American people with the option of an economic U-turn. A return of the Democratic Party to the principles of Franklin Roosevelt, where once again, the Democratic Party stands in unequivocal support uh, and advocacy for the working people of the United States. All I can control is what I am offering. I'm not in control uh, of the people who try to obscure or obstruct that. And I'm not in control of what people vote for. And that is a good thing, though. That's just democracy. So but I'm grateful to you and everyone else who does give me an opportunity. And, you know, there's a lot of independent media now. We're on yeah, TikTok. Yeah, I know. And, you know, so, I mean, we're out there. It's, it's not like we're not out there. And it's still early in the race. So one thing in the uh, Inflation Reduction Act that uh, President Biden supported, uh, that also many in the Republican establishment support, is the uh, 45Q tax credits for the carbon dioxide pipelines. I don't know how much you know about these pipelines. So this is a very regional issue. It's an upper Midwest issue affecting about five or six states. But these CO2 pipelines, 
would traverse through two, uh, 2,000 miles of Iowa alone, not to mention all the other pipelines in, in neighboring states. But uh, the uh, three companies that want to build them, they're all big corporations. Um, they're all connected to big oil. Uh, they're all arguing that the CO2 pipelines are needed in order to, uh, in order to um, mim- uh, limit the effects of climate change. But they would have to be built with eminent domain. They would have to involve condemning farm ground. And right now, we've started to see the battle lines drawn with many, many, uh, many, many farmers, landowners, many more than in the Dapple fight, standing up and saying, no, you're not going to take my land for a pipeline that benefits a corporation. But these, um, this is a big issue that really defines, on one hand, almost all of Iowa in this case. I mean, 78% of people polled are against these using eminent domain to build these pipelines. And then you've got the Democratic and Republican establishments on the other side who want them. And again, eminent domain is a big central point in the whole conversation. Where do you stand on those? I stand on the fact that the people should not have those pipelines in their land if they don't want them. Uh, The government should not have the power of eminent domain in order to create those pipelines. Uh, Those pipelines have to do much more with profit for um, uh, oil companies than with anything else, no matter how much they claim they're trying to help the world. It's much like the Mountain Valley Pipeline uh, that's uh, part of the debt ceiling mm, deal. Right. Uh, the, the trains and the, and the pipelines that are going very dangerously, carrying toxic material in places like Iowa and Colorado uh, and, U- and uh, Utah. I mean. So we have absolutely got to mm. take a stand. And I absolutely stand with those who are claiming that they do not want those pipelines in their land. Well, that would make you very distinct from the Biden administration and many Democrats in leadership, as, as well as many Republicans. Uh, so, I mean, I think that's a message that maybe people would be interested in hearing. Um, one, uh, one other question I have, we don't have too much time left, time goes by fast. Uh, uh, the administration's response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I don't think any of us should be naive about how this all happened. We shouldn't be naive about the uh, United States meddling uh, with NATO, the United States going against its own promises, against the expansion of NATO, uh, the Aegis missiles in Poland. Um, I'm not pleased by what happened when uh, Boris Johnson went to talk to Zelensky. I'm not uh, uh, pleased about what happened with uh, Naftali Bennett. I think it's very clear that it did not have to get to where it got. However, for me, none of that justifies the behavior of Vladimir Putin. I'm an anti-imperialist. If you're an anti-imperialist, you're not just an anti-imperialist when it comes to American foreign policy. You're also an anti-imperialist when it comes to Vladimir Putin. And um, I am uncomfortable with anything even approaching giving him a pass. Mm. I do think this is an issue of sovereignty. um, And I understand Obviously, the only answer here is a diplomatic solution. Uh, Denmark and others, uh, but Denmark particularly mm-hmm, right. most recently, has uh, offered to host a summit. But it has said it can't just be uh, Ukraine's allies. It's also got to be China. It's got to be Brazil. It's got to be India. We're not living in a unipolar world anymore. We're living in a multipolar world. Right. So right now, we're in the middle of the uh, Battle of Bakhmut. Um, I don't believe, you know, some people say, oh, uh, they're the peace candidate. I have one opponent who claims he's the peace candidate. Be, be very clear here. If the United States would just right now say, okay, 
we're not giving a cent and everything we've got there is coming back. This is not a peace position. This is a war position. What Russia would do at that time is completely crush Ukraine. There would be no more Ukraine. So right now, I support giving Ukraine the possibility that when negotiations do occur, and they will occur, it's the only end to this thing, that there will be a Ukraine. I do support Ukraine to that extent. And you, you have to walk and chew gum at the same time on this one. You can realize the malfeasance of the U.S. war machine and at the same time right. stand up to Vladimir Putin. Here. But is is the Biden administration and is the is the mainstream media play, paying enough attention to the necessity of diplomacy as soon as possible? No, they are not. Hmm. Well, and that's no, they are not. Yeah. So um, another, another I, got a, I guess we have time for a couple more questions here. One, one, I, one issue you've made uh, prominent that's I think fairly unique to your campaign is the notion of reparations for the descendants of slaves. Uh, that, that's, um, that's probably going to be somewhat, I mean, and I don't know whether you're campaigning on that this time around or not, but that was something you raised last time. And uh, it, it had some, some favorable response and some criticism. Well, you know, I think what I want to do is to help realign U.S. policy, domestic and foreign, with the higher angels of our nature and with the humanitarian principles of the Declaration of Independence and the spiritual and psychological principles that prevail within all of human life, really. And one of those principles is that you can't have the future you want unless you're willing to clean up the past. Uh, Germany has paid $89 billion to Jewish organizations after the Holocaust. Uh, the United States paid uh, reparations to uh, those who had been uh, uh, placed in the Japanese internment camps during World War II. By the middle of the 20th century, it was a, uh, a common feature of the civilized world, the recognition that if one people had done wrong to another people, that financial remuneration is reasonable. And when you have the fact that we had almost 250 years of slavery, followed by another 100 years of institutional suppression, uh, of, of black people in the American South, I don't know how we can argue that we don't owe their descendants something. So we just continue to pass a toxic baton uh, on this issue of race, one generation to the next, to the next, to the next. Now, if you compare that to Germany, uh, who the, so the end of World War II uh, was 100 years after the end of the Civil War. But if you look at the way Germany has handled its relationship to the Jews of Europe, I'm not saying that the financial remuneration made all the difference, but the financial remuneration contributed to the psychological and emotional healing. We have a, that has occurred. We have a war that was over in 1865 and we're still carrying the toxicity one generation to another. So, yes, I would like to be the president uh, on whose watch and in whose administration some fundamental, something so fundamentally fun fundamental occurred in terms of course correction between the races in the United States mm. that our children and our children's children will have a, a chance to fundamentally reset the trajectory of the social relationships between us. And we'll, that will only happen if we're, if we're able to reset the economic trajectory. You know, if we close the wage gap between blacks and whites, we'd have a much larger economy in this country. It would be benefit everyone, mm. 
for us to do the right thing here. It would benefit both white and black America. One last question for you, Marianne. There's, um, and again, maybe there's more conversation about it from the political right than on the left, but the, uh, quote, woke movement, as it's called, I'm not even sure if that's the right description, but uh, is that helping the Democratic Party or hurting it? Well, this is what we have, of course. We have people who are holding the vast majority of wealth and power in their hands. And they know that the only thing that could break their power is if the majority of Americans realize what was going on, realize that they were being so oppressed and the majority of Americans are being economically oppressed by a political and economic order that is dominated by corporate and billionaire power. So what they have done is they've created these, they have manufactured these false fights. They're almost like food fights. MAGA over here and woke over there. And everybody's looking to their left or to their right, saying, ooh, they're the problem. Woke is the problem. Uh, Everybody's the problem. Because the people who created all that did it because they don't want you to look up. It's one of those don't look up things, but Uh, economically. So I think this whole woke conversation is is ridiculous. And I think 20 years from now, we won't even remember the word. Obviously, there are people who go too far. Name one area of life where there's not somebody who goes too far, okay? (laughs) Uh, But at the same time, they go too far, many of them, in directions that are absolutely correct. They're standing for greater equity. They're standing for greater inclusion. And do they take it too far to ridiculous lengths? Of course, they do sometimes. But that is not Hmm. the source of America's problem, and we shouldn't pretend that it is. If I could squeeze one more quick political question in here, Marianne. It's very unusual for, again, for a sitting Democratic president or Republican president to have a challenge from within his or her own party. And President Biden has not one but two challengers, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. How do you see yourself distinguished from Robert F. Kennedy? Well, I see myself distinguished from uh, Bobby Kennedy in quite a few ways. He talked about Israel the other day like he was at an APAC conference in 2005. That was number one. Hmm. Uh, Number two, I heard Bobby say the other day that we would have an impermeable border. I'm like, what? An impermeable border? What is that? Is that a wall or is that soldiers? What are you talking about? And I also heard him refer to himself as a peace candidate uh, in terms of Ukraine, almost as though, you know, there are some people today who think if I know how to put the word proxy and the word war in the same sentence, then I'm so hip and cool that you don't have to ask me any further questions. So (laughs) when it comes to Ukraine, I would say to Bobby, I agree with you, probably 85% on how we got here, but what would you do any differently? So I think um, from what I've heard him say, and I like him, by the way, I've known him for several years. I consider us acquaintances. I I like him as a person, but uh, there's a a very libertarian streak there. Hmm. I'm, I'm the progressive candidate. He's the more libertarian candidate. And um, hey, this is what elections are about. <laughs> people, um, people will figure out for themselves uh, what they really prefer as well, an agenda uh, for where America needs to go. I, I understand a lot of his plat- deplatforming um, issues, uh, but to me, the oppressed in America are are not the first people who are oppressed in America. To me, uh, is not the person who was deplatformed from Instagram. It's the hungry child. 
Mm. Um, I'm interested. I understand about tech oppression and uh, surveillance. I, I don't disagree. A lot of that's important. Mm. But the most important thing to me is poverty in America, economic injustice in America, the fact that people can hardly hold it together, the fact that people have to work more than one job, the fact that our children are hungry, the fact that 600,000 people are homeless in this country. Uh, I, I want to get people out of survival mode, and yes. then we can talk about some of those other issues. So there are a lot of differences between him and me. Okay. Well, Marion, thank you uh, so much for joining us. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. I know uh, campaigning for president keeps you pretty darn busy. Uh, so, again, good luck with your work, and uh, let's keep in touch. Folks, we've been talking with Marianne Williamson. Uh, Marianne, if folks want to follow your campaign, where do they go to do that? Marianne2024.com. All right. Thank you. Hey, folks, Ed Fallon with you here. We've got to take a short break, and when we come back, Kathleen McQuellen is going to join me. We'll be talking about a new call from the survivors of the 1945 atomic attack on Hiroshima for the abolition of nuclear weapons. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed, and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Hey, thanks again to our sponsors, including Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Dr. Joel Westrom and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open from Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry. All right, so I am uh, delighted to welcome Kathleen McQuillan to the program. Kathleen is with the Catholic Peace Ministry, and of course the Catholic Peace Ministry is one of our partners in making this program happen. Uh, Kathleen, uh, the uh, G7 met in Hiroshima, Japan last month. And, of course, the G7 is France, the U.S., uh, England, U.K., uh, Germany, Japan, Italy, and Canada, which um, is interesting to me because, you know, measured by GDP, the economies of China and India are larger than four of those seven, but they're not part of the, uh, part of the, the big get-together. Get Go figure. So, anyway... Uh, we can scratch our heads about that for a while, but um, the the interesting thing to me, and I, and I think that you've been tracking this as well, uh, it's been what almost eight decades after the um, the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, the G7 meets there, and the mayor of Hiroshima and survivors of those bombings uh, are urging the G7 leaders to issue a strong statement against the use of atomic weapons. That, to me, 
is encouraging. Well, yeah, I mean, that they issued it, uh, I think energy around the world, in fact, was pretty excited about uh, G7 meeting in Hiroshima. Mm-hmm. Now, the outcome seems to be something else. Uh, statement was very weak, and I don't know um, how much how much hope that, that, that put out. I know we had been following it, and one of the groups that we work with, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, had also been following this with some hope. Um, but it seems the statement that came out from uh, from the G7 was pretty weak, and um, almost a slap in the face, I would say, to the people who had organized inside uh, Japan in Hiroshima and had been so hopeful now the mayor, that something positive would come out. The mayor from Hiroshima, Kazumi Matsui, uh, he said, uh, and I quote, they should use, they meaning the G7, should use the meeting to deepen their understanding of the realities of the atomic bombing and recognize that the only way to protect people's lives and secure their prosperity is to abolish nuclear weapons. If they do that, I think the summit will have been a success. And the G7 statement that came out of the meeting cites, quote, our commitment to achieving a world without nuclear weapons. So that part sounds pretty strong. Well, that sounds okay, but there was nothing attached to it. I mean, they said, we reaffirm the importance of disarmament and nonproliferation. But when you kind of look at what actually came out, there was no commitment. There was no uh, even mention of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which is one international binding instrument that has some power. Uh, they didn't even mention it. They did reaffirm the importance of the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty, which has been around for 52 years. And um, at least in the eyes of the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, it's failed miserably hmm. because it hasn't been able to deliver nuclear compliance. Hmm. And, and, you know, those who signed on, those who do have the weapons, said they would take steps to get rid of them. Hmm. And that hasn't happened. Now, so it's kind of a betrayal um, to the people who don't have weapons and promise not to get them. Yeah. I mean, because that, that's the, the, the Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons is, let's be clear, that's a way to try to prevent other nations from joining the the nuclear club, so to speak, which um right. which is good. I mean, I I don't want more nations getting nuclear bombs. I, I I'd hate to see a Yemen have the nuclear bomb, for example, or or Monaco. But um, right, but part of that deal was that those who have them right take some steps to reduce or get rid of or negotiate away, and that part hasn't happened at all. Well, I mean, it, it, there were, what, at one point there were, what, 60,000 nuclear weapons, and there are now oh, only, quote, I'm putting only in quotes, only 15,000. Right. Um, is, is, that, is, that is that regarded as progress? I mean, that's a good point, but, you know, that's still more than enough to destroy the world, so is it progress? No, I yeah, mean, I know. It, it was done a while ago. We, you know, they got rid of some, but never... To the point where it actually would make a difference if if there was any kind of exchange. Now, I noticed that the uh, statement out of the G7 also, not surprisingly perhaps, took an opportunity to bash Russia uh, <laughs> and also yeah. had some criticism for China as well. Uh, and, I mean, and, and some of the points are, are fair. I mean, one, one criticism of Russia was that it wants to, it has announced that it may again begin nuclear testing. 
But as you pointed out, you know, the bottom line is even though it states this broad concern for achieving a world free of nuclear weapons, there weren't a lot of details as to how it's going to get there. Yeah. I mean, there were no steps to, you know, outline sort of disarmament. Yeah. No commitment to stop modernizing, no commitment to reduce our stockpile. You know, at the same time, the United States is now in the process of uh, uh, rebuilding our stockpile to the point of $1.7 trillion to uh, replace all the old ones and bring new ones on. Now, what does that say to the rest of the world? Right. I mean, <laughs> how so, much interest is there from the United States? And therefore, what kind of message are we giving to the so rest wait, of the let, world? Let me make sure I understand, though. There's $1.7 trillion. Is that in the Defense Authorization Act? I think... I'm not exactly sure where it is right now, and it's going to be over several years that they're talking about this, but um, they're not talking about not doing it. Okay. This is a, you know, seeing, let, let a, me, a move forward with them. Okay, so the, um, I know one, one, one thing that's touted as a big accomplishment in the nuclear disarmament movement is the, the uh, test ban accomplished in 1996, I believe, and, um, you know, that... Before that time, there were what two thousand nuclear tests worldwide, uh, which uh, which not only enabled the further development of nuclear weapons, but caused tremendous havoc and destruction, uh, mm. and destroying people's health and people's environment. There, there, there are still, you know, islands yeah. in the South Pacific that are completely uninhabitable. There are places in the Nevada desert that you just don't want to go. But um, you know, and so they, they they still tout the importance of this test ban treaty. And now we have Russia saying we might start testing again. And, of course, the U.S. and the other G7 countries are critical of that. But is testing even necessary anymore? I mean, you, you just talked about $1.7 to upgrade the U.S. nuclear weapons yeah. stockpile. They're not going to use testing to do that. That's so really a good point. Is it not even necessary? <laughs> I mean, is, is, this, is this a nuclear test ban not that big a deal in the long run with, with new ways of figuring out how to uh, assure right. the, quote, safety of nuclear weapons? Well, it seems like it was extremely important at one point and opened the door for us. Right. However, it seems like that door is closing. And maybe, as you maybe, I, I don't really know uh, the reality of that situation, whether it's not needed anymore. But I think it, it was a great thing at the time. Mm. And, and had it been taken advantage of and we built on it, it could have been very, very significant. So I don't want to downplay the importance of that effort but whether it still holds water today uh, may be questionable yeah my my suspicion is and i need to learn more about this but my suspicion is that it is, it is no longer that technology has rendered detonating yeah. a nuclear bomb on an island or in the desert or somewhere else a moot point but yeah anyway that sounds the, reasonable so it's interesting to think what russia is intending, or are they just putting out some scare tactics, or, and it, or what? It, it might be that, and the other the other scare tactic, of course, and this is not just a tactic; it's it's a it's a, it's a legitimate concern. They want to move certain tactical weapons to the neighboring country of Belarus, which of course borders NATO nations, uh, and, yeah. that, and that's just and that's just inclined to make everybody a little more nervous. Uh, and it just seems like it's um the whole uh, you know that gets some attention in the mainstream media. But what, what rarely is discussed in the whole Ukrainian war is, is the, the reality that this whole situation, this, 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 this proxy war between the U.S. and Russia in Ukraine 
is is making the whole world much less safe and the whole the risk yeah. of nuclear exchange so much greater. And that seems to be avoided. I mean, maybe that's one reason we at least saw some conversation about nuclear disarmament from the G7. But again, they, they seem to avoid the, uh, the, the tough issue of, okay, how are we going to do this? Yeah, and I noticed that some of the people in Japan and uh, in Hiroshima specifically were very disappointed that Zelensky was brought in and, you know, feel that that really took attention away from what they had hoped would happen. Um, and I just wonder if that wasn't intentional. Mm, yeah. Well, Kathleen, I got to run to a break. I really appreciate you joining us. Uh, folks, uh, Kathleen McQuillan with the Catholic Peace Ministry, my guest here this segment of our conversation. Uh, back and in a, Yeah? I want to make a real quick comment. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. That um, on August 8th at 7 p.m., there will be an observance in Iowa, which, you know, is about the 45th year of doing this, hmm. um, about the uh, Hiroshima Nagasaki bombing. You know, an observance of regret, of mourning, of commitment uh, to end the scourge. Mm. So, um, of course, there's time between now and then, but at least people can start putting it in their calendar and we'll get more information okay. out. Okay, very good. And there will be similar uh, uh, observances, I believe, in many cities across the U.S. So yeah. if you're listening yeah, outside sure. of Iowa, check your, local, uh, check your local calendars for what might be happening. Again, uh, Kathleen McQuillan, uh, thank you so much for joining us. When we go out from this segment, I'm going to share a, a little tune uh, from Fred Small, Cranes Over Hiroshima, which I think is an appropriate uh, remembrance to the, uh, the urgency of the conversation about nuclear disarmament. Cranes over Hiroshima, white and red and gold, flicker in the sunlight like a million vanished souls I will fold these grains of paper to a thousand one by one and I'll fly away when I am done Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store with over 5,000 items to choose from you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Thanks to our sponsors, including Architecture by Synthesis, 
Owner Mark Klipsham asks that you use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. Examples of Mark's work can be found at architecturebysynthesis.com. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. Learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page. All right, so we all eat for a living. I'm... Eating's important. Kathy and I talk about food every fourth segment of this program. I'm going to talk about food this segment as well, but from a different angle. All right, so Walmart and Kroger, uh, in Walmart in particular, they, 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 they are uh, being noted and criticized for forcing suppliers to give them big discounts. And those discounts were unavailable to smaller grocers. So um, their major, the major suppliers we're talking about include Kraft Heinz, uh, General Mills, uh, Clorox. And I never thought that I'd hear the day when Clorox meant something other than really horrible smelling caustic bleach. But apparently it also means food now. So Walmart, um, Walmart accounts for over 20% of these chain's sales. That's very significant. And Walmart has learned to take advantage of that relationship by demanding special deals. So these three companies, what do they do to make up for it? They make up for it by raising the prices to customers. Yet they still, of course, get get their get those um, get those supplies for cheaper than your mom and pop's stores can or your smaller chains can. And this um this isn't fair. It isn't right. It should be uh, stopped through antitrust laws, uh, but unfortunately, we don't have those in the U.S. anymore. We we might have them on the books, but they are not enforced. They have no teeth. Bottom line is, we don't have we don't have anything resembling effective antitrust laws. So, um, Stacy Mitchell, who I've known for a while, I've I talked to her decades ago. Um, she's been a, a very uh, important commentator on all things local, all things relevant to the challenges that big businesses place on, on mom and pop stores, not just, um, not just uh, grocery stores. But she writes, uh, what we have now is not competition. It's big retailers exploiting their financial control over suppliers to hobble smaller competitors. Our failure to, to put a stop to it has warped our entire food system. It has driven independent grocers out of business and created food deserts. It has spurred consolidation among food processors, which has slashed the share of food dollars going to farmers and created dangerous bottlenecks in the production of meat and other essentials. And in a perverse twist, it has raised food prices for everyone, no matter where you shop. That's um, that's really good analysis. And, you know, it's not you think about I mean, I've known about Walmart forcing these deals on these suppliers. And so um, I've known about that, but I haven't thought about how it also affects everything else, including farmers. I mean, the, you know, one reason farmers have to get bigger and bigger all the time is because, you know, they, they make less and less on every bushel of corn or bushel of soybeans that they produce. So, um, again, looking at more of what Stacey Mitchell has to say, Quote, a level playing field was long a tenet of U.S. antitrust policy. In the 19th century, this is a good history lesson, 
Congress barred railroads from favoring some shippers over others. It applied this principle to retailing in 1936 with the Robinson-Patman Act, which mandates that suppliers offer the same terms to all retailers. The act allows large retailers to claim discounts based on actual volume efficiencies, but blocks them from extracting deals that aren't also made available to their competitors. For roughly four decades, the Federal Trade Commission vigorously enforced the Robinson-Patman Act. From 1954 to 1965, the agency issued 81 cease and desist orders to stop suppliers of milk, tea, oatmeal, candy, other foods from giving preferential prices to the largest grocery chains. Well, that's all great stuff. And what happened? Well, <laughs> I, I'm just going to, uh, her, her stuff is so good. I'm just going to keep reading from it. As a result, the grocery retailing sector was enviable by today's standards. Again, because of effective antitrust laws. Independent grocery stores flourished, accounting for more than half of food sales in 1958, the year I was born. Supermarket chains like Safeway and Kroger also thrived. This dynamism fed a broad prosperity. Even the smallest towns and poorest neighborhoods could generally count on having a grocery store. And the industry's diffuse structure ensured that its fruits were widely distributed. Of the nearly 9 million people working in retailing overall in the, in the mid-1950s, nearly 2 million owned or co-owned the store where they worked. And there were more black-owned grocery stores in 1969 than there are today. But as Stacy Mitchell points out, beginning in the 1970s and 80s, Walmart, which seized the opening and soon became notorious for strong-arming suppliers, a lot of it happened under the Reagan administration, but even before then, just they, they kind of became, well, let, you know, these antitrust laws aren't really that necessary. Let's just kind of back off. And that's when kind of Walmart fell into that void and started strong-arming suppliers that undercut local businesses. And so now Walmart, of course, captures one in four dollars that Americans spend on groceries. I will say I never shop at Walmart, and I I would I mean I would encourage I would encourage you to not to as well. <laughs> it's really important to have businesses that. Uh, have a presence in your neighborhood, in your community. But also, just, just um, you don't want to see a business become prominent because they're able to circumvent laws that are, are simply not being enforced. I mean, we have antitrust laws in this country. There's a reason. You, you don't have fair competition. You, you can't have fair competition if you don't have some kind of a level playing field. There's got to be some rules and regulations. I like to compare this. I love sports metaphors. I love to compare this to football, all right? People who don't want any regulation at all should look at a football game without, you know, where, where, where the 10 yard ten yards gives you a first down. Fudge that a little bit, 10, 11, 9, whatever. Or do away with the uh, rule that says you can't grab an opponent by the face mask and throw them to the ground. You know, do away with lots of things in a, in a football game, lots of rules that, that make it work, and, you know, you won't have a very good game. Same with baseball. Even though nobody understands the inf infield fly rule, without it, you'd have some problems. Uh, without a rule against balking, you'd have a problem. You know, so these games work. They, they, they assure good competition because they have rules and regulations that people agree to. 
without rules and regulations, our, co- our economy, and in this case, our retail economy, is, uh, is going to be a disaster. And that's what we've got now. We've got, we've got this huge concentration of grocery power in a few massive chains. And they have been able to uh, obtain that power through, you know, uh, through strong arming. Uh, they, they take their size. They become basically a bully. And they use that, that, that bully pulpit, <laughs> if I can say that, to, um, to make it impossible for others to compete. So uh, just uh, coming back to uh, Stacey Mitchell's um, take on this again. Uh, these food giants are now the dominant buyers of crops and livestock. Uh, the lack of competition has contributed to the decline in farmers' share of the consumer grocery dollar, which has fallen by more than half since the 1980s. And I'll throw in that even in the 1980s, the farmer's share wasn't that much. So this is, this is a big problem for farmers for mom-and-pop businesses, and for consumers. Mitchell continues, In the absence of rivals, food conglomerates have over time increasingly been able to raise prices and, as a result, have reported soaring profits over the past two years. Inflation gives them a cover story, but it's the lack of competition that allows them to get away with it. Meat prices surged last year among the four companies that control most pork, beef, and poultry processing. And I'll add there that one of those companies, the biggest, in fact, is Smithfield, which is, I've said this before, owned by China. So, you know, I, you, 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 kind of, you kind of come away with a theme on my program, if you listen to it often enough, and that is that we, we, we have become a colony. And not just of foreign interest, in the case of Smithfield, China, but companies that, have, that are headquartered within the U.S., in this case, in Walmart's case, uh, Arkansas, you know, a, a company that has been able to strong-arm its way into many sectors of our retail economy, and in this case, food, the food sector, uh, and they are huge. And um, again, it's like, it's like, again, it's as if, in, 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 back to sports, it's, it's as if there was no rules, no rules, no regulations, no ways of, of providing any kind of a, Balance. You know, one. what happens at the end of a season? The worst team, the team of the worst records, gets to have the first draft picks. That's one way of beginning to equalize. Uh, I know there's also been conversation about uh, making sure that teams can only spend so much money acquiring players and whatnot. You know, those rules help make for good competition. And if we don't have them in our economy, we're going to have this problem and it's only going to continue to get worse. And again, think about that. In the last two years, these big food conglomerates have seen that they raised their prices even as people were struggling with COVID and inflation. And at the same time, they saw incredible profits, record soaring profits. You know, you know it's, it's a problem that's not going to go away until somebody starts talking about, somebody in a key leadership position who can do something about this starts talking about bringing back some enforcement of our antitrust laws. And I, I, don't, uh, I don't see that happening um, under a Joe Biden administration, under a Donald Trump administration. Uh, it's going to have to be somebody who steps outside the box and says, hey, uh, look, uh, this used to work a lot better. Let's, let's go back to the way this was. Maybe tweak it for some current realities. But we, right now we don't have competition in the retail sector, and that needs to be restored if we're going to have it 
a fair deal for farmers, consumers, and for small business operators. Hey, this is Ed Fallon. We've got to take a short break, and when we come back, Kathy Burns is going to join me. We're going to be leading our June Garden Q&A. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Clipsham asks that you use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. Examples of Mark's work can be found at architecturebysynthesis.com. That's architecturebysynthesis.com. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Hey, thanks again to Gateway Marketing Cafe, our longtime anchor sponsor for this program. Thanks also to our nonprofit partners, including Catholic Peace Ministry, founded in the 1980s to work for peace and justice. CPM is an independent nonprofit organization with no official ties to the Des Moines Catholic Diocese. Kathy, welcome to the studio. Kathy Burns with me, folks, for our monthly Garden Q&A. So, questions here. I see there's um, a question about ants on tomatillo plants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Question is, is it a bad thing? And if so, what do I do about it? Well, it, it's, it may not be a bad thing. And somebody who responded to that question had a nice natural recipe for luring and eliminating the ants. But the real problem is not the ants. The real problem, the problem is what is drawing the ants, and that is most likely aphids. Right, because they, they're farmers like us. They are. And uh, <laughs> uh, besides, cut, along with cutworms and slugs, uh, tomatillos uh, really fear aphids. And aphids can suck nutrients out of the leaves, causing a lot of uh, depletion of their vitality. They can transmit disease from one plant to another. Um, so we've, we have struggled with aphids as mm, well on artichoke yeah. plants year after year. It's, it seems to be getting worse, coming on sooner and being more persistent. But we're, we're trying several things. We always end up with a good harvest anyway of artichokes. But you've got to, you, sometimes you could spray those down with a gentle but firm spray from your hose. Um, but you do need to treat them. Insecticidal soap or neem oil can be very effective mm. with repeated applications. Yeah, and ho- ho- um, insecticidal soap can be made at home too. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. I uh, see another question about wood mulch. Uh, does wood mulch rob nitrogen from the soil? That was very interesting. Yeah. What do you think? Uh, it, well, we we've always kind of taken for granted that it does, and I did some more. Uh, look into it. It really depends on whom you ask, <laughs> but I found what I thought was a pretty fair uh, source for that. Depends on what the application is, and um, uh, I, on a site called do, do not disturb gardening.com. <laughs> they, they are, um, you know, working to provide promote no-till gardening and 
give accurate information, um, that the wood chips do deplete nitrogen, but only from a shallow zone of soil close to the surface. Mm. So below the first few inches, the nitrogen levels can actually increase because huh. of the um, microorganisms that use nitrogen to decompose the organic matter. And as the organic matter decomposes, it can so, it can actually amend the soil. Maybe don't use wood mulch on shallow-rooted plants like strawberries. Right. If yeah. you do, it's best to provide <clears throat> a buffer zone between um, the tops, the top uh, layer of the wood mulch. Prov- put some uh, just a straight layer of compost uh, in between that uh, for a few inches, yeah. and then then you can plant that. They're okay. It seems to use in deep root plants like shrubs and trees. So that was very interesting. So, of course, tomatoes. Everybody's talking about tomatoes this time of the year. Because we want a, them now. Right. And we'll get them soon enough. Here's a, not a, not a co- question, really, but a comment. The only plants I plant a spot for are tomatoes and potatoes, so I can make sure to rotate them. I planted randomly with companion plants and flowers, lots of giant orange sunflowers for shade. I thought that was interesting, Ed, because we've had the problem with heat this year in well, last year we had problem with heat with our tomatoes and potatoes this year you have worked hard to put straw mulch mm. on, on our potatoes to uh, decrease the soil temperature which we're hoping will give us a better crop but we thought the tomatoes are having trouble pollinating to an excessive heat and we thought how do we create a shade structure and I just thought hmm. that planting giant sunflowers <clears throat> for shade was a neat idea it gives it gives you another source of potential food or um, something for the birds if you want to use it that way. Also, you can plant them in a different place when you rotate that crop. I hmm. just thought that was very interesting. As long as they don't completely shade your tomatoes. I right, suppose, yeah. right. I mean, it depend, you watch where the sun is going to be, and if those, um, if those sunflowers can shade your plants during the hottest part of the day, that might be a benefit. This is another tomato question from somebody. This is my third year planting tomatoes in the same raised bed. Can that be why they're not doing well? <laughs> if so, should I move them now and grow something else there, or should, is it too late to switch? Well, that might that's probably why they're not doing well, and yes, it's too late uh, to move them. Third year in the same spot. That's pushing it. If you start with a brand new bed and clean soil without any disease or blight or anything in it, you'll pro- you might get a, a couple good years, but you do invite the potential for the blight and that will stay in the soil through the next year. So it is yeah. a good practice to rotate. I, I think anymore to you, it's it's not a bad idea to, to apply an organic compound called copper sulfate mm-hmm. um, to help. With I mean, the blight. It, it comes as a powder, but it's probably a better a, a better buy to get the get the um, the liquid version, mix it up, and spray it early before you even see any blight. Mm-hmm. It, to me, I mean, we just always it's, there's going to be tomato blight. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's not that bad. Sometimes the foliage can't keep up and it takes over the plant. Right. Yeah. Oh, hey, one more question. Uh, this one's about weeding, I think. Uh, <laughs> uh, I spent about an hour hoeing and weeding my tomato plants. Came to the realization I don't want to be doing this in the midst of summer. <laughs> what, what do you guys recommend for mulch between plants? And what type of fertilizer do you like for your tomato plants? Um, cardboard, straw. Watch out for the seeds in the straw. Um, Fishing mulch for for fertilizer. For fertilizer, yep. Hey, Kathy, thanks for uh, joining me today. Thanks, folks, for tuning in to the Fallon Forum. Uh, Thanks to my guests, Marianne Williamson and Kathleen McQuillan. 
And to our production squad, I say thank you, Sherry Herdina, Forrest Detterman, Charles Goldman, Kathy Burns, and myself, Ed Fallon. Thanks also to our local small business partners, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Western Optometry, and Dr. David Drake Family Psychiatry. And thanks to our nonprofit partners, Catholic Peace Ministry, Iowa Physicians for Social Responsibility, Bold Iowa, and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. And thanks to the Des Moines Irish Session for our bumper music. Back next week, folks, with another hour of Cutting Edge Talk Radio.